Paul in his writings and the New Testament writers did not live with an understanding of the sovereignty of God, which they embraced, and they understood better than we do. But they did not embrace that to the point of becoming lukewarm and indifferent and cold. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your glory. I thank you for who you are as an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-seeing, everywhere present at the same time, eternal God. Lord, we share in none of these attributes. We're made in your image, meant to be conformed to your image. But there's a part of you that we will never be. We're not meant to be. We can't be. It would be idolatry. There's one true God, and that glory you will not share with another, you said in Isaiah. And so... You are holy. You are separate from your creation. You're doing a work in your creation that's phenomenal, inconceivable. It's full of glory and grace and mercy and justice and righteousness. And, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. And we, ha- we don't really even get a, just a glimpse hardly of it now. But in glory when the ages are concluded and the new heaven and earth are brought into being and all of that glory is revealed. The man is a fool who does not receive such a message. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that the hearers of this message would not have their ears tingled, but have their hearts touched, touched by the very hand the very work, the very presence of Almighty God. I'm asking, Lord, that you come into this, these words which you've written, words which are your scripture, your, your Bible, that belong to you. Lord, hide me behind the cross and allow your word to shine forth like the stars in the heavens, like the sun, O oh God. I ask these things to move people, to change, transform people, to work your work in the church as it's meant to be. ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The episode that we are about to share is episode 39 from Romans 12, 1, beginning. And the title of it is Reasonable Service to God. Reasonable Service to God from Romans 12.1, which says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Service of worship. 
So we're being urged by the Apostle Paul, by the mercies of God, which that mercy cost him his son. It cost him an eternity of suffering. We can't really, you know, we think six or three hours on the cross and we, we put it into that time context. But we have to understand that had we not been saved, it wouldn't have been six hours in hell or three hours in hell. That from noon till three when darkness fell, and that's why I refer to three hours, that it fell upon Christ, not for three hours. I mean, God is able to reach out beyond that. I can't explain what I'm saying, but I know the penalty is an eternal penalty for which God paid. Because it has to come out right. And God does everything right. And so the mercies of God is in accord with the sufferings of Christ, which we experience, we who have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ through grace, by grace through faith, by the mercies of God, by that suffering that took place. And then we are told to present, you know, bring it before a person like ready to be used, present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So the body, this machine that takes us from place to place and by which we talk and we do all these things, that we present the body, which also can be sinful, as a living and holy sacrifice, holy, separated to God, living by the eternal life that God has imparted in the soul who has given his heart to Christ, having repented of sin, that that is made acceptable to God. Now what makes that sacrifice acceptable is our spiritual service of worship. No, it's not our fleshly service of worship. It's not our carnal service of worship. It's not that which we present which is just produced through self-effort or human effort, which is so prevalent and has been in the church, but particularly in my understanding that the 20th, the 21st century, I mean, not to, I'm no judge between churches. I just know that there is a Laodicean church at the end of the seven churches spoken about in Revelation in which it's a, it's a church that God's going to vomit out of his mouth. It's a church which is lukewarm and which thinks of itself as being great and yet it's miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked and all of the elements which really don't speak of a church. They speak of a church that's not a church a pretend church. God will never vomit his people out of his mouth. I'm not here to speak about Revelation or, or the Laodicean church. I'm just speaking to a, a culture and a time in which we live, which there's been much martyrdom, and I want to undo any of that and sacrifice and coming to know Jesus. And that's prevalent too in the church. But there, and I'm, we're going to look at this in this coming podcast uh, about how Paul viewed the church in his time, both good and bad. And it's Paul who's writing in Romans 12.1 and who's urging the brethren 
by the mercies of God to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He wants worship in which God is put first, no idolatry, it's all about God, and he wants it done in a spiritual way. Not canned the presentations, not programs and procedures and all things that are not really related to the Spirit of God, but that which is Spirit-led, empowered by the Spirit of the living God. Now, each one of you in your own place and me in my place, we have to see what we believe in our hearts as we're led by the Holy Spirit, what is good and what is not. Discernment is the hardest thing to come by. shouldn't be for those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and certainly those who are filled with the Holy Spirit are led by the Holy Spirit and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. The question is, when are we filled with the Holy Spirit? That's something which is ongoing. It's from one moment to the next. It's not guaranteed. It's not like being saved and being justified in the courtroom of God. It's something upon which the Bible says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be being filled, Ephesians chapter 5. Why? Because it's in the present continuous tense because it's something that needs to be done. It's need to be acquired by faith, by, by the grace of God through faith. And so that's a, a responsibility of the Christian. In that, we're coming out of Romans chapter 12, where he, he then goes on and talks about um, nonconformity to the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. that you may prove, be testing the will of God, that which is good and holy and acceptable to God, not to us. It's not, we're not the ones who test these things or approve these things. It's God who has to do that. That's why we have to be biblical. And that's why we have to be Holy Spirit filled and led. So when he talks about be not conformed, but be transformed, in the Greek, the word is metamorpho, from which we get more to more metamorphosis, which you know that's that, that metamorphosis that takes place when you have a caterpillar that goes into the cocoon, and it's still the essence of the caterpillar, but it gets transformed into a butterfly, a beautiful butterfly. In some instances, there's different animals that do this. But here we have which spiritually references this, this transformation is being with Jesus Christ. Why? Because metamorpho or changing form in keeping with inner reality. In the Greek, that's what that word means. It actually comes from two Greek word, words, meta, or changing after being with. It's uh, an association thing, which spiritually references our being with Jesus Christ. And morpho, which is changing form in keeping with the inner reality. So when Christ comes into a person's life, he changes the heart, he, he, he replaces the heart of stone, Hebrews chapter 10, and he, he replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And so we become a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away, old things are becoming new. Corinthians. And so that 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 inner transformation, the, the transformation outwardly in the body and the 
in the soul, in the mind, all of that is coming out of this new reality of being one with Christ and having been given a new heart, a heart which instead of hating God and rebelling against God and not submitting to God, is a heart of love for God. It's a heart that's willing to submit and it's, and it's w- willing to be transformed and it's repentant and it has faith. It's a different heart. And so that's what we're looking for. We're looking here for conformity to Christ through the inner reality. Now, if that inner reality doesn't exist because there's no regeneration, there's never been a born again, then all of this is falling on deaf ears. All of this is not going to happen to any listener who is not born again. There has to be a a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to look at a little bit in this message, and I want you to be ears perked up and listening to what we're talking about. So now, in uh, in verse 3, I want to put this in complete context in the Romans, Romans 12, 1, 2, and 3, which says, for through the grace of God, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I want the context because we're going to move away from the scripture and look at, a, at a, an idea that's coming out of this verse and is much more fully colors, gives texture to what we're looking at here from, from John chapter 17. But in, in this context where Paul goes from here in verse 3 and following, he's talking about humility. He's talking about the fact that the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And then he talks about how God distributes gifts to all people for the sake of humility. That the gift is given. We don't earn it. We don't, we don't create it. You know, it has n- we don't manufacture any of this. This is something, it's a gift. We have nothing to do with it. We just receive it and we say thank you. And then we acknowledge this is not me, this is coming from God. This is completely different than the world, which he's telling us not to be conformed to, because the world makes statues, and it gives out awards, and it gives praise to, to people. Not to God. You know, the man runs the, the hundred yards, you know, and he, he does what he has to do, and he gets the trophy, and he gets the millions of dollars of pay. You know, I don't regret any of those things except when God is left out. When all of the emphasis goes on the man or the woman or the child or the person and not on God. In heaven's glory, it'll be all about God. In the world that we're not to be conformed to, it's all about men. And so that's the context is the humility part. But where I want to take this, this matter of this reasonable service and this conformity to Christ is that there is no conformity to Christ apart from knowing Christ. That's right, knowing Christ. The, 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 uh, the, uh, the way that we come to know Christ is through an intimate relationship with Jesus. And that relationship is formed when a person, as I've stated, is born again. 
he comes into, he receives eternal life. And that eternal life, which is God Almighty, then takes the heart and makes it new. Now, in that context of knowing Christ, that's what we call identification with Christ. Identified. Where, what is it that you consider your identity? If you look at the movie Overcomer, they make a big issue in that movie, and it's a, it's a very good movie, Overcomer, because they make an issue of where do you find your identity? Is it in your job? Is it in your family? Is it in, you know, is it in anything of this world? Or is your identity in the person, the lordship of, of Jesus Christ? That's where it belongs. Into that realm of thinking, we, we see Jesus as he's making his way to Gethsemane, where he's going to pray, as was his custom all through his life. He'd spend whole nights, he'd spend half the night. He would go to God, he would always pray. He was always in communion with God the Father. He was always in a prayerful state. He was spending time in prayer. And now he's on his way to Gethsemane where he's going to sweat blood, where he's going to prepare for the cross. He was going to prepare for the wrath of God, which overshadows the, the wooden cross and the wrath of men the anger of men, the hatred of men, where he's going to actually take on him the sins of the world. He's doing this in prayer in Gethsemane, but on the way there, he stops. He's been talking to the, the disciples. He's been leading them in, in an understanding of what's coming on him and how they have to be prepared for it, and he comforts them in the upper room. And then they leave the upper room, and he continues the discourse, and he's talking in the darkness of the night, and as he goes forward to Gethsemane, he stops, he looks up to heaven, and he prays. The hour had come. The hour was on him. The time was upon him when he would do the most sacrificial thing that any being could ever do, which is Almighty God, when he would sacrifice himself in this way for mankind. And he stops, and in this prayer, I'm going to take certain verses and share them this is actually 17, 20 to 26, of which these verses come out of. And he says in verse 20, I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So get the picture right from this verse starting is that all that he's saying in, in his prayer, which is known as the high priestly prayer of Christ, where he's actually praying. He's not talking about prayer as he did in Matthew's gospel and teaching them to pray. Here he's praying, and he says, I'm not asking on behalf of these alone. These disciples that are with him, those who have walked with him for three years, not, not only them, but the, all the disciples that showed up, the 120 in the upper room, and those, uh, no, all, not only them, but also all those who would believe in me through their word. Pentecost comes 5,000 plus, that's men, probably fifteen to 20,000 people, saved on Pentecost, all, he's praying for them as well. And all those to come after that. All for 2,000 years and counting. And I want to include everyone because I want, to know, want you to understand that this prayer is for you if you're a believer. Verse 21, that they may all be one. And this is key to what we're talking about. We're talking about getting close to Jesus. We're talking about getting to know Jesus. You know, getting to know Jesus 
is uh, better, no better explained than through a ma the marital relationship where two people become one flesh, in God's words. Two people become one. A man and a wife become one. In all the ways that it's possible for us to become one. We raise the same children. We share the same house. You know, we, we share our feelings and our frustrations, our strengths and our weaknesses. When two people really bond together in holy matrimony and it begins to be made by God himself, there's a oneness there that transcends anything physical. It, it goes into emotions and into the spiritual, particularly, of course, if the two are both Christians. And so I'm painting that picture to say in verse 21, this is Jesus' prayer, and his prayer is that they may all be one. Outside of different cultures, different times, different eras in Christianity, different places, different churches, all of that, that they may all be one. Get this, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, you don't get more perfect than that. You don't get more real than when you're talking about God, who himself is the source of all our life, but he is eternal life. That's as real as it gets. That's as complete as it gets. That's as perfect as it gets. That they all may be in us. So we're all to be one, just as the Father and the Son are one, and the Holy Spirit is doing the talking and he's being humble here. He is humble. And he doesn't include himself in this verse, but he's there. I can say, and he wanted the emphasis to be on the Father and the Son, I'm just stepping out of my, my proper place here for a second to just give him praise because he is God. And so, as the Father and the Son are one, He wants us to be one and to be in them the way they're in each other. That they also may be in us. The reason? So that the world may believe that you sent me. There's some dynamic that's going on here that should be really condemning to all of us, so far as we take up our position as a denomination, as a charismatic, a Baptist, a Pentecostal, a Presbyterian, all of those separations are not fulfilling this will of God in this prayer. Any separations, theological, any separations from any Two people struggling over what they perceive to be the truth versus maybe a lie. This Jesus is praying that they may all be one. Now Jesus isn't confused. Jesus doesn't care for lies. Jesus hates lies. Jesus is the truth. He is the source of truth for every man, for all of mankind. And in that, he is truth. He's, he's not divided. He's not confused. The Father's not divided or confused, and neither is the Holy Spirit divided or confused. They're one. And let us understand that as we are one, as we are in 
Christ, we are one. You can't have two disciples divided over whatever the matter might be if both are in Christ. One has to be out and the other is in or both are out and then there's division. But when both are in, uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, total man is in Christ and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, there has to be unity. Can't be anything else. Now, that's a hard thing to accept, I'm sure, for many people, because that leaves you outside in some cases. But the question is, look, do you want to walk in truth? Do you want to walk in reality? Or do you want to walk in some kind of fiction or fantasy? You cannot be in Christ and be divided. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit and write, but you never write all the time. And so this is where we go back to the humility that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Look, let us not consider ourselves to be better than we are. Let's consider ourselves not to be better than we are. Let us humble ourselves and understand. And this, this message isn't about unity of the church. It's not about that. It's about being in Christ. You want unity? And this would have to take place in every single person. And so let's pray to that end, that the church would be unified because the church is in Christ. Identification in Christ. Intimate, like in a marriage, with Christ. I'm not talking physically. I'm talking spiritually. Intimate with Christ. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The next verse, uh, or the purpose for unity, is so that the world might behold the supernatural. Miracles that attest the healing and such things, I'm not talking about that right now, but I'm talking about miracles by comparison of the transformation of the human soul are insignificant. I mean, making a a blind man see is one thing. It's a nice physical miracle. It would be glorifying to God. But the transformation of his soul from a sinner to a saint, Jesus puts that on a whole different category in another section. When he talks about, you know, you've seen many things. Wow, this is great. Uh, you're going you're gonna to behold a lot more than this. And he had healed a nation. All of those miracles he put in a completely different category than Pentecost, when the souls of men were transformed. The souls of men in Isaiah uh, 53, verses 5 and 6, says this, the punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, Jesus, on the cross. And by his wounds, we are healed. Next verse. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Each of us has turned to his own way. You want to see the world in reality? You see six billion plus people all going their own way. The fact that there's nations in different languages, that's just like kind of a little heads up from God when he brought that curse upon the world at Babel. And he said, look, this is a little bit of who you are. 
You know, you got all these divisions, you make war with one another, you're all divided, but that's, not, that's nothing because the fact is every single person is divided from every other single person. What are you talking about? You know, we're all Americans and we all believe the same way, or we're Chinese or Japanese. Well, you know that's not true. I mean, there's division in families. I don't have to make this point for anyone who has ears to hear. Only identification with Christ can visualize the miracle of transformation. A transformation of the human soul when it is placed into Christ and realized by the individual through faith. Let me read that again. Our identification with Christ can visualize the miracle of transformation, a transformation of the human soul when it is placed into Christ and realized by the individual through faith. That realization is that intimacy with Jesus Christ. Verse 22 in Romans, in uh, John 17. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them. The glory, so that they may be one just as we are one. The glory, in Isaiah 6, it says that there was angels there and they were shouting and they were praising God and they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his holiness. No, it doesn't say that. It says the earth is filled with his glory. God's glory is holiness revealed. What's holiness? Holiness is the fact that God is separate from all of his creation. His glory, as I started in my prayer today, he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows everything. He's everywhere present. He's all-powerful, and he's eternal. I mean, that really separates him from who we are, as finite, teeny-tiny people on a teeny-tiny planet on an enormous universe that fits in the, in the palm of God's hand. Okay? That's what we see in, when we see God, when we see Jesus. We see an infinite God, and that's his glory. That's his glory. The glory which you have given me, Jesus said. He shares that glory with the Father eternally. The glory is that he's separate. He's like no other being. There will never be a being like him. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them. What glory is that? It's not the glory of who he is in his, in his characteristics that we will never share. It's not that. It's the glory of being separated. He is separated from all the world, all his creation. When we are separated from the world to him, we are receiving the glory of holiness or being separated. He is separated. But he's now talking about being placed in him. He's talking about being separated from the sinful world. He's talking about being separated from the creation as we know it to being separated in him. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them so that they may be one just as we are one. He's separate from the world in that the world is Divided, unsubmissive, rebellion against each other, hateful of each other, miserable in that way. 
His glory is not only the glory that he's separate, as I've just explained, but that he's separate because he's love. The love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have shared in an eternal state, that love he's imparting on us. It happened through the cross. And it's then imparted in our heart and in our mind as we become close to Jesus. Just as we are one. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. This is the unity of oneness with God. Just as Jesus is in us, that his comes through the Holy Spirit and he imparts himself in our hearts, he convicts us of sin, he, he convicts us of, of truth, he convicts us of, of, of everything that's important by his living in our hearts and in our minds that they may be perfected in unity. That we come together, just what I've been explaining before, said that the world may, and he says it again, so that the world may know that you sent me. And you love them just as you love me. My dear listeners, here comes a really, really important big question. And this is directed directly to believers, but also to unbelievers who might be listening to this. Are you believing these things? Is this something, let me put it another way. Are you living as though you believe these things? Is there transformation taking place in your heart and in your mind? How much are you working off of your own energy? How much are you relying upon your position in Christ to accomplish and give Christ all the glory? How much do you pray so that you might not live off the energies of the flesh? These are questions I can't answer. These are questions that only you can answer as your mind is enlightened by the Holy Spirit who brings conviction, conviction of the truth. He may be giving you, leading you to the cross right now because there's an awful lot to be convicted, an awful lot to be repented of. Or he might be showing you the glory of what he's doing in your heart and has been doing. That, that's true, that may be the case. I don't know. But it's something I want you to experience, uh, consider and to consider carefully. Now at this point, we're going to move over to Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, I want us to go in the same direction. But I, I want you to feel Paul's heart and his concerns uh, over the, these matters of being in Christ. How important is this? I mean, look, are, are we going to take the position that if when a person comes to Christ, he's on his way to heaven, and God's in control of all things and sovereign, so for, therefore we don't have to worry about anything. Let me tell you where that can lead. That can lead in one of two places. It, it can lead to where you put your, play, your, your, your life in the hands of God so that no matter what happens, God is going to protect you. He's going to meet your needs. He's going to be the God who provides, which is a good thing. Or, or and, you can become cold and indifferent and unmoved by the responsibility that we all have to live for Jesus, much like the Laodicean church. 
I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you that Paul in his writings and the New Testament writers did not live with an understanding of the sovereignty of God, which they embraced, and they understood better than we do. But they did not embrace that to the point of becoming lukewarm and indifferent and cold. And that temptation is before the hearers of everyone who's alive or hearing my voice in the future. Every single person, every single person is tempted now. They were tempted then. Our temptations are either within our own flesh or from demonic places or the world. Those temptations are real, and they're meant to tempt us to be cold and separated from God, where the place that we belong is in him. So Paul goes on in here in verse Colossians chapter 1, and he's talking to the church at Colossae, and he's he says that he gives thanks to the Father and prays, you know, since he ever heard he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love which they have for the saints. He's, there's all this praise which we want to look at. And we want to acknowledge that God does praiseworthy things in people throughout all the years. And because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world has been constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing, in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Understood. That's uh, Now we're in the, the area of knowing. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved and fellow slave who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, also, since uh, the day I heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. These uh, words have to do with knowledge, gnosis, epinosis. Uh, epinosis is not just facts in the mind, but it's actually something that can transform the, ho- the heart. It's truth. It's a personal knowledge. It's a, an experiential knowledge. It's not just intellectual. And the intellectual does not bear fruit without the experience. You see, that's, we're in a, a Greek culture that understands that intellectually when you get something, you fully got it, and that's not true. You don't fully get it until you experience Jesus because, see, Jesus is the source of truth, not a lecturer. That's why you don't need any man to teach you You need God. Now, as we go through Colossians chapter 1 and you continue to read, he then begins to picture Christ for us to understand that he is the image of the invisible God. When you see Jesus, you see the invisible God, the God you can't see. So when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus. Right now, it's a matter of faith. One day, we'll see him face to face. He's the firstborn, the one who has first place in all creation. For by him all things were created, the heavens and the earth. But he became a man, visible and invisible, with thrones or or dominions or rules or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. We're seeing Jesus now in Colossians chapter 1. And he goes on talking about who Jesus is. 
And then it goes on in 21 and says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He wants us to see Jesus. The whole New Testament is written for this very purpose, that we might see Jesus. Now at this point, he goes, we go to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, when we look at, beginning at verse 1, we, we read what's almost a very curious thing. We, we read, and this is what Paul says in his writing, for I want you to know how great in the New American Standard in English, it says, for I want you to know how great a struggle, how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. That's the seventh church that I've already talked about. That's the church which is lukewarm, the church which is going to get vomited out of his mouth that Jesus talked about, a particular church in Asia Minor at the time of the writing, but also it's laying out for us a, a cultural church as the last church in Revelations chapter 3 of the seven churches. I want you to know how great a agony in Greek. I want you to know how great I agonize within myself on your behalf, that I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. So he's talking about Colossae. He's talking about that church. He's talking about, he names two particular churches because that's where these letters are going. Make no mistake, he, he agonized over the churches. He agonized over Corinth. He, he agonized. Why? Why would a man who understood as an apostle who had personal interviews with Jesus Christ, who understand beyond, far beyond our knowledge of things that were given to him that he had to receive a thorn in the flesh to keep his spirit humble for having the knowledge that he did in a, in a place where we have temptation through the world of flesh and the devil, he had agony over the churches, a man who understood the sovereignty of God better than we do who understood that God is in control of all things and that not only that, the gates of hell can't prevail against the church and we have assurance of salvation and once you're saved and Christ, you're in the palm of Christ's hand, he's going to get you in because it's nothing we could do anyway. It's what God is doing. That's always the transformation of thought and renewing of our mind is that God is central, not us. It's not about some human effort. It's not about what we do. A man who fully understood this beyond anything that we do understand, why would he agonize over the church? In your place where you're listening to this, can you give an answer for that question? And what was the agony? He, he agonizes and he goes on and says, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Well, that includes all of us that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and argument. Now, let us understand something here that is very 
very important. This word understood the grace of God in truth from Colossians 1, 6 is epikinosko. I tell you, there's gnosis in these verses. There's You'd have to look them up. There's gnosis, there's epinosis, epikinosko. This epikinosko, and this is where this agony is coming from. This, this word means fitting. It's, it's taken epi on fitting, which intensifies gnosko, which is know through personal relationship, as I've said, properly experiential knowing through a direct relationship. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not saved. I don't care what's in your head. He's uh, agonizing over numerous things here, and what he wants to know is that people have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's one thing. There's other things. This knowing builds on epi, upon, and it's a, the verbal idea is defined by the individual context. This is talking about this Greek word. I'm going, to give you a, I'm going to give you a context where this word is used. And it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. You can stop this and then run to the scriptures and look it up. If you're driving, don't look at anything. Epis, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now, the scripture in the Greek has some interesting uh, differences from the English. Mirror means mirror. Dimly means enigma. It's an enigma. It's something that's hard to understand. They give us a picture of looking in a mirror which is contorted and stuff. That's fine, kind of. But the word itself is the word from which we get enigma. It's, it's really hard to understand. Now I see in a mirror, which is an enigma. But then, face to face. I mean, when, we, when you behold the face of God, you know, mirror, Moses had to be stuck in the cleft of a rock where he would just see the hinder parts of God. Some people have said the face of God is the righteousness of God. And the hinder parts is the love and mercy of God. You know, we think of a man and, you know, hinder parts and our backside. You know, the, the picture is there is two sides of God. One is love and mercy and the other is righteousness and holiness. You stand before the righteousness and holiness of God and you're just burned up to cinder. Unless, of course, you're in Christ. And they're covered by the love and the mercy of God, which is the picture you have of Moses. Well, you know, all of this... When we look at these things, we can look at these truths and it can be an enigma to us. Paul was in agony because he wanted it all to make sense because this is the protection in this world from the world of flesh and the devil. 
But it's far more than that. He said, now I know, Gnosko, I know in part that knowledge, the facts part in her head. But then I will know epignosco, which is which is a full knowledge, a full experiential knowledge. I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. He's talking about now, and he's talking about then. He's talking about how he will know, and he will know by how he has been known. By how he has been known. That's the way it's written. Uh, to know exactly. Now, one Greek um, uh, author, a commentator, talking about this verse, put it this way. He said, to the extent that we make ourselves known in this life versus the way we hide in this life, that's the way we will spend the eons of eternity. Now, I have to tell you, when we talk about loss, I don't know that that's exactly what this means. Um, why am I talking? Well, it's written down in such a way that it, it points to that direction, in that direction. Um, and actually, in 1 John chapter 1, it says, if we, if we confess our sins one to another, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. If, if we confess our sins, if we walk in the light, I'm sorry, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with each other's saint, as the saints, the brethren. We have fellowship and his blood goes on cleansing us. If we don't walk in the light, if we don't repent of sin, if we don't confess sin, then we walk in the dark. Uh, ultimately, a person who walks in the dark is lost. He calls God a liar. He He's not true to his profession of faith. Everyone repents somewhat who is a child of God. We are called to walk this kind of a life because it looks like to some extent that will may, you know, even if it's a possibility, change how we, how we are in glory. Now it's possible that once the millennial kingdom passes by and all of those kingdoms and thrones and all of that handing out of rewards and which is gone and then all of that is done and the last age finishes and then the old heavens and the new earth are destroyed and the new heavens and the new earth are made and we go before the white throne judgment and when all of that takes place and then everyone is folded in together and everything is exactly the same. <clears throat> that is a possibility. It's a, it's a good possibility. But to the extent that this one doesn't read, that this verse reads, for now we see in a mirror dimly, in an enigma, and we can't really make 
sense of things, and we can in Christ. We can when the Bible becomes more important than our own thoughts, when we don't reason our way through the scriptures, but we actually submit and be selfless, and we sacrifice our own thoughts on the scripture. We just lay them down and we say, no, I'm going to believe what you're telling me. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been known. Just as God is permitted, I'm going to put it in a, in a less accurate way for our human understanding, Paul did that once in a while, is, was permitted because we walk in the dark and so we shut God out. And we all know that that's possible of taking place, that we shut God out. And he's, if we're saved, he's going to chasten us and he's going to discipline us and he's going to make us his own. I don't know how those things work. I don't think anyone does. To what extent and why some people seem to be in a fog and they are they Christian, are they not Christian? Are they Christian but they're walking in a fog? The other persons just seem to see things so clearly and with such understanding and you just want to be around them and you want to hear what they have to say. That kind of person to some extent is a person who's getting close to Jesus. And what you hear is Jesus. When you hear a person who's kind of makes things foggy, it might be your lack of understanding and ability to hear what he's saying, or it can be that he's, he's in the Spirit and he's walking close to God and God makes those things known. And when you listen to a man like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, was a non-seminary graduate who just embraced God, and, and, and when you hear his preaching, you understand, gee, there's a difference here, <laughs> you know. Not, not for comparison's sake, but just to understand there are men who are in the Spirit and men who are not. I mean, if you listen to a Sunday morning preacher who's trying to sell something, I mean, I hope you understand and you have discernment to know the difference between that and a Martin Lloyd-Jones. Paul's agonizing here because he doesn't want any loss. He wants us to know Jesus fully now. Why? One, because he wants us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which he says in another place. He wants us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are called to Jesus Christ who sacrificed heaven. We are called to the Father who did not spare his own Son. We are called to gnosko. We are not called to gnosis. We are not called to just a head knowledge. We're called to a heart knowledge that transforms the person into a better, fuller person. We are called to fully embrace Jesus Christ and to know him fully and to be fully known by him. In these things, we are called. I sincerely hope that as I speak these ideas and these principles, that you are fully embracing the need to know God in truth and to know him beyond your intellect and where you live in your heart, where you make choices, where you feel with your emotions and where you think through things intellectually. 
I'm going to end with a quote from A.W. Tozer, which says, For a long time, I have believed that truth, to be understood, must be believed. That doctrine of the Bible is wholly ineffective until it has been digested and assimilated by the total life. The essence of my belief is that there is a difference, a vast difference, between fact and truth. Truth in the Bible is more than a fact. A fact may be detached, cold, impersonal, and totally disassociated from life. Truth, on the other hand, is warm, living, and spiritual. A theological fact may be held in the mind for a lifetime without its having any positive effect upon a person's moral character. The devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Truth is creative, saving, transforming, and it always changes the one who receives it into a holier and humbler man. Theological facts are like the altar of Elijah on Mount Carmel before the fire of God came, correct, properly laid out, but altogether cold. When the heart of makes the ultimate surrender, the fire falls and true facts are transmuted into spiritual truth that transforms, enlightens, and cleanses. The individual not taught the truth of God by the Spirit of God has simply failed to see that truth lies deeper than the theological statement of it. Let me repeat that sentence. The individual not taught the truth of God by the Spirit of God has simply failed to see that truth lies deeper than the theological statement of it. You can hear that statement. I'm deviating from the quote. You can hear that statement and, and, have, and not receive the truth of that statement at all because it's just intellectual. Concluding the quote, at what point then does a theological fact become for the one who holds it a life-giving truth? At that point where faith and obedience begin. At that point where faith and obedience begin. A.W. Tozer. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is something we, we ask for. Faith is something that has to be applied. Faith is something that comes out of a transformed heart. Faith is, is something that sees what the eyes of this body can't see. They see heaven. They see glory. They see Christ on a cross. They see Christ risen from the dead. Faith sees these things, not with physical eyes, not even really with the mind, but with conviction. The conviction that tells us these things are so. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your, your truth. Lord, the time comes when a, a speaker such as myself, the words end. My words are really kind of meaningless compared to your holy word. I ask, Lord, that you take the word from this message and you just make them real in the hearts of people who hear it. Give them an understanding that's beyond themselves. I know, Lord, how much Christians spend time 
Some Christians, more than others, spend time reading your word, listening to messages, loving to hear people preach. Lord, these things are good. Good like men giving their lives unto death to be martyrs for Christ, where there's growth in the church, where there's sharing the gospel, where there's discipling men, where there's fellowshipping with one another, confessing our sins one to another, where there's accountability in love without criticism. All of these things and more prove that you work on the planet in people that you have called to yourself. Dear Lord, I pray that we proceed beyond these things to an intimacy that can only be found in Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, that furthers and deepens the soul, that imparts to us love and mercy and knowledge in ways that we can't do intellectually. It opens the heart. It transforms the soul. It makes us It conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ, outwardly as well as inwardly. Take the inward heart that's already been made new in those my hearers and bring it to a place of fullness now so that we don't see an enigma, but we see Jesus who makes all the treasures of knowledge that are in him, makes these things clear sets them up in an organized fashion that, P- that Paul desired his hearers would have and, and just fills the soul with Jesus Christ so that we can live a holier, healthier, humbler life. For those who hear this message and have never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, these words may seem very ambiguous. They may seem, they would seem like an enigma. Lord, give them the faith to receive you. Give them a repentant heart to turn away from sin and to offer themselves at the cross of Christ to receive Jesus as Lord and as Savior, to be born again so that these words could make sense and they would pursue you through hearing, through the ears but through the perception of the heart, through the spirit of the living God. So that at the end, they will not be hear those awful words, I never knew you. They will hear the words that he did know them. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the glory of the Lord. Because they know him. They know him intimately. I ask these things for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.